All right, Acts 20, and we are going to start at verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia, and so put her the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. I think that's how you say it. Then, he went, then the, the, these went ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him into his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until a daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he, so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Let's pray. Lord, your word is a gift to us, and your word as a gift we receive with thanksgiving and joy, and now We seek to look into your word, to study it, to understand it, to have clarity on the things that you are communicating to us. And we we know, Lord, that your word reveals who you are and what you are all about. So that is our prayer tonight, that we would walk away with a greater understanding of who you are and a greater understanding of how we relate to you in light of who you are. Thank you, Jesus, for the way that you work in our lives. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for bringing us into a relationship with yourself. And right now, we just pray by the Holy Spirit that you would work in our hearts, that you would minister to us, that you you would expose the things that need to be exposed, and that you would do work in our hearts. And Lord, I pray just for myself that you would help me to articulate this, this message that you've given me, I pray, Lord, that I would be able to speak with clarity that is beyond my own ability. May your Holy Spirit do the work and minister to people's hearts tonight, we pray. Amen. So most of you know that I am not an American citizen. 
I'm a Canadian citizen, although I'm in the middle of applying for American citizenship, which I'm pretty happy about. Um, but I am a Canadian citizen, and a bunch of years ago when I first came to the United States, um, it, it's really a long story, and maybe one of these days we'll sit down over coffee and talk about it, all of us together. But um, <laughs> it, it, it's an interesting story, but part of the story is when I found myself in California, I thought I had a place lined up to live, and I thought everything was honky-dory and everything would be fine. Problem was... I was crashing with a friend of mine, and I guess there was something in the lease, you know how it is, right, that he wasn't able to have a roommate, and the landlord found out about it, and we got busted, and I got booted. I don't know, maybe that's happened to some of you before, especially some of you guys who have eight roommates that live in Palms. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I think they're sitting in this general area over here. Uh, but anyway, I found myself in a situation where like, I have no idea where I'm going to live, and while it was a little bit upsetting and a little bit disconcerting, a little bit, you know, what is going on, I just had a sense of like, okay, you know, I'm just going to have to figure this out and just rough it. In no way, shape, or form did I feel like, oh man, God's will has for me has changed. I'm supposed to go back to Canada and God's closing the door. There was really a sense that, all right, God, you're doing something here. I'm not really sure what it is, but this is something that you're going to prove yourself faithful in and you're going to work something out. Everything's going to be all right. And so I went on with my life, and I was a, a just about, a, a, it was just about the time where I was going to be officially kicked out of the place where I was crashing. And a guy walked by me who I had never met before. Some of you have maybe heard this story. A guy walked by me who I had never met before, didn't even know who he was, didn't know his name. He walks by me, turns around, comes back, and he says, do you need a place to stay? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and he's like, come on. He says, I got to go to work, so I don't have a lot of time, but come on, I'll take you to the house, and I'll, and I'll show you. Like, come on, let's go. I'm like, oh, okay. What's your name? <laughs> I'm Lorenzo. Nice to meet you. And now, I, I didn't know him, but I had reason to believe he was a Christian, and uh, it was on a church property where this conversation took place, so I'm putting at least two and two together that this guy's not an axe murderer or whatever. Um, so I follow him to his house. And I go inside, and when I walk in, he just says, literally, he just says, welcome home, my brother. And I walked up the hallway, and right then, three guys jumped out of the room, out of room, and they jumped me. I'm kidding. Totally kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. <laughs> totally messing with you. I'm just making sure you're listening. No. It was the way it sounded at first. Welcome home, my brother, is what he said. And I was just like, this is so crazy. Like, it's like, when are the guys going to jump out of the bedroom and attack me? Because this is crazy. And, I'm, and he's like, all right, so here's the kitchen, and here's, this will be your bedroom, and here's the bathroom over here. And, and I'm walking up the hallway, and I look, as many people do, they have you know, pictures of their families on the wall, right? And I'm looking, and I see his family, and I'm like, oh, you got a family, and you got a wife, and apparently you got... Uh, some kids and stuff like, maybe we should talk to your family about this. Oh, yeah, good idea. Come back tonight at 7 o'clock. We'll talk about it. I go back there at 7 o'clock that night, and, his, and they're just sitting at the table, at the dining room table, waiting for me. And he, he's sitting there. His name was Henry. And his wife is sitting there, and his 16-year-old daughter is sitting there. 
which weirded me out even more than, because like you guys, I mean, I'm a father of two girls. There's no way I would just in, invite a stranger in my house if, if my, if I had, anyway, whatever. I think you get my point. So I'm like, are, are you guys sure? Like you don't even, you don't even know me. You have, you know a little bit about who I am, but you don't really know me. And then, and Henry was like, you know what? I talked to my Lord about it and he said it was okay. Okay, okay. And what I didn't know that I learned later is that when he walked by me, God spoke to his heart and said, go back and offer that guy your house. And the, one of the craziest parts about this is that Henry and his family, they were not well off. It's not like they had this massive mansion with all these extra rooms and, and money to burn, and they were not well off at all. They actually were struggling financially. And that didn't stop them from being so generous and so gracious and so hospitable. And... Um, yeah, it was, it was an amazing thing. But when that happened, and this was, this was early on in me coming to California in the first place, but when that happened, there was just this sense of God's got this. Everything's going to be all right. And I went through a lot of other crazy experiences, um, but there were, that was always in the back of my mind about how God had provided and how God had worked in ways that I couldn't anticipate or expect. And... In our text tonight, that's what, we wanna, that's what I want to focus on tonight, is how we, we see that God sometimes works in unpredictable, unexpected, unimaginable ways. He doesn't always do what we think he will do. He doesn't always do what we think he should do. And the same with us, with the plans that we make. We make plans, and we... And sometimes our plans come together, and sometimes our plans don't come together, and sometimes our plans fall apart, and sometimes we're sort of wondering, like, what is really going on here? But, you know, you know that verse that says God works in mysterious ways? Great verse. It's actually not a verse. But it's not wrong. It's not a, it's not a verse. It's not found in Scripture, but it's not wrong. Because God does work in, in ways that we don't always understand. And we see him working for our good. Well, actually, he's always working for our good, but sometimes he does it in such a way that we can see the good. And other times he does it in such a way where we can't see the good. And we have a lot of questions. Sometimes we wrestle with a lot of stuff. We're like, Lord, I, I, I theologically understand that you're good, but circumstantially I'm really wrestling with this. Sometimes that's how, that's how it is with our experience. But in our text here, this is sort of what we're going to be looking at, and this is sort of the angle that we're going to take. We see our story starting off with Paul in Ephesus. And he has just, he, he's, he's in Ephesus. Uh, there has just been a riot there as, as, the, as the gospel is making an impact. People's lives are being changed, and people are forsaking their idolatrous ways. And so the idol makers are losing money, and they're losing their business. And they create this uproar, and there's this riot in this city. And finally, that, uh, that settles down and calms down, and Paul gathers the disciples together, and he encourages them, the text says, and then he leaves the city of Ephesus, and he makes his way to the region of Macedonia. And there he visits the churches, many of these churches he had planted previously, and he, the text reveals that he gave them much encouragement. And then from Macedonia... Just so you can track with me here. He was in Ephesus. He heads northwest around the Aegean Sea, maybe across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia. Then he heads straight south down into Greece. And then as, as he's in Greece, 
The plan there is for him to jump on a ship. When he's finished his time there, he desires to, to jump on a ship and head for Syria. But it's while he's in Greece that he learns of a plot against his life. But despite the fact that there was this plot against his life, there was this sense that everything is going to be all right. And what he does is he backtracks north back into Macedonia. And then he makes his way across the Aegean Sea, which is actually part of the Mediterranean Sea, to uh, the city of Troas, which was a neighboring city to Troy. And Luke, the author of Acts, gives us this account of the church gathering there in Troas on the first day of the week. And this had become a tradition uh, in the Christian church for the church to gather together on the first day of the week. And the reason why is that it was uh, in commemoration and in remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they are gathered there on the first day of the week. And uh, Sundays, weren't, you know, Sundays weren't a day off for them. So when they gathered together there on the first day of the week, it, their gathering probably would have started around sundown. They would have worked all day. Their work day would have started around sunup, and they would work all day until sundown, and then the church would gather together. Now, I rem- and, and now, I mean, Sundays aren't what they used to be, but I'm old enough to remember at least when Sundays were the day off for everybody, and everything was closed. And now the only holdouts are those weirdos at Chick-fil-A. And it seems like every single time I want a chicken sandwich, it's a Sunday, <laughs> right? You guys know my pain. But now it's not like that anymore. Um, but for them, it, it, it was definitely a work day. It was just a regular work day. So the church is gathering in the evening there on the first day of the week. And there in this gathering, they're on the, uh, the upper floor, the text reveals. And Paul, and the re- there's, a, there's almost a sense of urgency in this gathering because Paul has plans to now to leave Troas the next day. And so they're seeking to make the most of their time together, so they're gathered there in this upper room. And the text introduces us to this young man named Eutychus. And uh, he's described as a young man. Later in the text, as we just read, he's referred to as a youth. Uh, but I, I think what we believe as we look into it, that and by young man or youth, what we're talking about is someone who's probably a preteen or a young teenager. And so the text introdu- introduces us to Eutychus. And Eutychus is uh, obviously not a name that we're familiar with. I don't think there's anyone in this room named Eutychus, and I doubt you know anyone by the name of Eutychus. But what his name actually means is lucky. And so lucky is there in this gathering in the upper room, and lucky is sitting in the window, and the church is gathered together. Now, maybe because of his age, his mom's getting on his case about him sitting in the window because he was just a young boy or a young teenager. And his dad nudges her, of course, like dad says, he'll be fine. We named him Lucky after all. He'll be fine. And so he's sitting there in the window, and Paul is preaching. And um, then as Paul goes on in his preaching, we see that in verse 9, Lucky decides to go ahead and fall three stories out of the window onto the ground below. I was a part of a church once where, um, unfortunately, we had a baby that fell off a changing table 
And uh, I've been a part of that before, but I've never seen anyone fall out of a window in a church gathering. And the baby was fine, and that was awesome. And especially now that I'm a father, I, that freaks me out. But you know what they say, kids are resilient, so the baby was fine. But what was he doing in the window anyway? What was Eutychus doing in the window? Why was he sitting in the window? And it was likely because he, he needed to get some fresh air or wanted some fresh air. Fresh air. And so the room is packed with people. It was likely stifling and muggy. Um, as I mentioned, Troas is, is located on the edge of the Aegean Sea, which is part of the Mediterranean Sea, and in that, that, that hot, muggy climate there. And uh, in what is, to give you a reference point, it's modern-day Turkey. And so he's sitting in the window there, trying to, probably trying to get some fresh air. And with it being so late in the evening, because it says that Paul is preaching on until midnight, it's so late in the evening, and no doubt this young boy is getting tired, and maybe it's the hypnotic effect of the torches that were in the room that the text oddly identifies as being in the room. Um, but anyway, he, 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 he is overcome, and um, he can no longer fight off his exhaustion and, and the sleep that his, bi- his body craves so much. This is definitely something that I can relate to. I have been known to fall asleep while driving. When I was younger, I crashed at least twice falling asleep while driving. Uh, Thankfully, no one ever got hurt. I've also been known to fall asleep in the middle of conversations. Pastor Casey drives him completely bonkers when that happens. (laughs) And sometimes it doesn't happen, but he'll still accuse me of it. He's like, you just fell asleep, didn't you? And just the other day, I was singing bedtime songs with my kids, and um, I fell asleep in the middle of the song. (laughs) And that doesn't mean I was no longer singing, because I was still singing, but all that was coming out of my mouth was nonsense and gibberish. (laughs) And my five-year-old caught me and said, Daddy, wake up. You're not singing it right. (laughs) She totally busted me. Now, when this takes place here in this room, I'm not really sure what alerts everyone else in the room to what just happened with Lucky. I'm not sure exactly what happened. I don't know uh, if someone was sitting next to him and, and saw him take a header out the window, or maybe he, you know how like, sometimes when you're on a flight and you fall asleep on the flight, but your worst nightmare is you're gonna end up sleeping on the person's shoulder next to you. And maybe you've experienced this or even seen it happen with other people and snickered to yourself when you saw it happening. But you've, you start to, you're sitting up and you're starting to fall asleep and there's just something that happens when your body moves and your, your body starts tilting to one side and you're about to go and you're about to go and all of a sudden you just jerk and jolt yourself awake. So I don't know if that happened to Eutychus as he's falling out the window and that's what alerted everyone where he, sh- he yells out and shrieks that, that he's falling and maybe he's clamoring for the ledge as he's falling out this window. But imagine the panic in the room. Imagine the chaos that ensued. Everyone rushes down the stairs, three flights, and what they find is not a pretty sight. Now remember, as we've discussed in previous talks, Luke is the writer of Acts, and Luke is a physician. And so I wonder if Luke goes rushing down there and he's pushing people aside, make way, make way, get out of my way. I wonder if Luke attended to Lucky. But also it's interesting, in light of the fact that he is a doctor, 
he would know and understand fully the state that Eutychus is in. And, there, and we, hear, we see here in our text that it's, it's, he describes Eutychus as being dead. He says he was dead. And he would know, being a doctor. And then at some point, Paul comes down. And the, the, it's just complete chaos. People are freaking out. Maybe if he, if he was a young boy, as we believe, it's likely that his parents were also there. And imagine the crazy situation that that is and the grief that is suddenly overcoming them and flooding them and how they're completely freaking out. And Paul comes into this situation and he goes down and he wraps his arms around the boy's lifeless body and the young boy is revived. Now it was a miracle. It was a miracle that took place, obviously. We have a physician pronouncing him essentially dead. Not essentially dead. We have him pronouncing him dead. And Paul stretches himself out on this boy, takes him in his arms, and he is revived. I don't think anybody else was tired after that. I'm sure everybody was, was wide awake at that point. And the text says that the people were not a little comforted. In other words, very comforted. And now, of course, there's only one thing left to do. Go back to church. <laughs> right? Obviously. And so that's what they do. They go back upstairs, and Paul continues on until daylight. What an absolutely crazy story. This story in this account of Eutychus. And it's easy to sort of look at a passage like this and think, this is the story of Eutychus. This is a passage about Eutychus. But what I want to suggest to you is that this passage is not about Eutychus and this is not a story about Eutychus. This is actually a story about God. The work of the Holy Spirit in giving us this account is not just so that we will see what happened with Eutychus, but it's also providing evidence of God's providence in the events that surrounded what happened here. Remember from our text, Paul wasn't even supposed to be in Troas. He wasn't even supposed to be there. And we see that in verse 3, that he never intended to go there. While he was in Greece, he had plans to jump on a ship and head for Syria until he learned of the plot against his life. So all that has transpired wasn't the plan. All that has happened since that plot that he discovered against his life this is all like sort of like plan B, kind of like rolling with the punches kind of a thing. None of these things were supposed to take place. And so Paul wasn't supposed to be there in Troas. Or maybe he was. The most cynical among us would say, yeah, well, that's great, Lorenzo, but you know, if it weren't for Paul preaching all night long, Eutychus wouldn't even have fallen out of the window. And that's true. And that's a good point. But... There is a but. That would be to ignore the rest of the story. The rest of the story, uh, we see here that not only do the believers there in Troas witness this incredible miracle and keeping in mind that they are gathered together on the first day of the week in memory and in commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus. So it's sort of a resurrection service and the church at that time would would, would have been much more cognizant of that than we are. We just think it's Sunday and we go to church. 
But this was a relatively new custom for the church because they understood the connection to the resurrection of Jesus. And this, this goes down, and they experience a resurrection right in their midst. And here's the point. It was in the providence of God that Paul ended up in Troas. Paul had his plans, but there were certain circumstances, even negative circumstances, this plot to kill him that would force a change in those plans, and it ultimately led to some great ministry opportunities for Paul. Sometimes things happen, even bad things, like threats against our lives, kids falling out of windows. But even all of these things are all still within God's providence. What is the doctrine of God's providence? It has been described as God's gracious oversight of the universe. Providence being God's gracious oversight of the universe. Theologian and author R. Kent Hughes defines it this way, God sovereignly working in and through the everyday non-miraculous events of life to affect his will. Let me read that again so you can process that. God's providence, he describes and defines as God sovereignly working in and through the everyday non-miraculous events of life to affect his will. It means, and it speaks of, the fact that God upholds all things and he governs all events. He directs everything to its appointed end. He does this all the time and in every circumstance. He does it always for his own glory and our good. And we think of some things that maybe we've experienced in our lives or events and circumstances around our lives, maybe even presently, and we think, ah, I don't know about that. The bottom line is, it's a theological reality of who God is and how he has revealed himself. I understand that we don't always understand how this relates to the real stuff that goes on in our lives. But nevertheless, this is the theological reality this is who God is. And there are some other attributes of God that help us understand and put a little bit more meat on these bones. We can look to his sovereignty, which speaks of the fact that he is in control. We look to his wisdom, which means that he doesn't make any mistakes. And we look to his goodness, which tells us that he has our best interests at heart. And though the word providence is not found in most modern translations of the Bible, the concept is still something that is very certainly biblical. Colossians, 1, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Paul wanted to go to Syria, but he got detoured. Reminds me of Proverbs 16, verse 9, which says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. There's nothing wrong with our plans. There's nothing wrong with Paul's plans. If our plans are not against the will of God in very direct and sinful ways, there's nothing wrong with them. 
So sometimes we have this idea that, you know, and plenty of sermons have been preached about, you know, the Lord's ways are higher than, your, than ours. And we sort of pit our ways as ultimately corrupted completely and God's ways ultimately much better. And we, we sort of, there's this implication of let's just forsake our ways and our plans and let's just lean on God. And that's not entirely a bad thing. But our takeaway from this is not that we don't plan. The takeaway from this is that we don't have that we abandon all desires, especially as they relate to doing good and serving Jesus and, and things like that. But man plans his ways and the Lord establishes his steps. The problem is, or the only problem is, is that when we are pushing our ways so much and so forcefully that we are disregarding the things that God desires, when we impress our, when, when we push our desires in such a way that it pushes away God's desires, that's a problem. That's not us submitting to what the Lord wants. But in here, as we see God's providence, we see that God ultimately orchestrates and is sovereign over all things. And so there needs to be an openness to the things that God wants to do. And it's interesting as it relates to God's providence, even the actions and decisions of mankind serve God's purposes somehow, including horrible circumstances. Now, I don't want to do a deep dive into that too much for obvious reasons, but we actually did address this. I think uh, a previous, I think it was last year we addressed some of these things. But there's this weird relationship here where even the actions and decisions of mankind serve God's purposes in some way. And we actually see this. A really great picture of this is found in um, uh, the book of Genesis. And we see this, this, this reality or this, this beautifully demonstrated and beautifully pictured in the life of Joseph. Now, some of you will know the story. Some of you don't, so I'll run through it as quickly as I possibly can, just giving you the bullet points. So Joseph, he's loved by his father. He's the favorite son. His father favors him. His brothers get jealous of him, and they throw him into a pit. Then they sell him, they sell him off into slavery. Then he gets sold off to uh, an officer of Pharaoh's court. And um, while he's there in Egypt serving in that capacity, he gets falsely accused, and he gets thrown in jail. While he's in jail, he meets uh, Pharaoh's cupbearer, Pharaoh's cupbearer has a dream. Uh, Joseph interprets the dream that makes an impression on the cupbearer. The cupbearer gets released from jail. Hope I'm didn't missing. It. Hope I'm not missing any points. The cupbearer gets released from jail, and it, it, a few years later, Pharaoh has a dream. No one can interpret the dream. That jogs the cupbearer's memory and tells the Pharaoh, hey, I know this guy. He helped me. He can probably help you. They summon Joseph out of prison. He's been there for a long time now. And he comes into Pharaoh's presence and, and Pharaoh shares with him the dream and Joseph interprets the dream, the tr- interpretation being that there was going to be a great famine coming upon the land. And Pharaoh is so impressed and he makes Joseph second in command over all of Egypt. And he creates this plan to store food to prepare for the famine that is to come. The famine comes upon the land. It's a horrible situation, but Egypt is well prepared thanks to Joseph. At some point, his brothers come back into the picture and they come to Egypt to buy food. And they come across Joseph and they don't recognize him at first. 
And then Joseph at some point reveals himself to them. And this is what he says. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, Trippy. It was not you that sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And later he would tell them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What an incredible picture of God's amazing providence. This reminds us that in the big picture, everything is going to be all right. Look at the crazy situation that he went in. I wish I could have gone into that story a little bit more deeper to, to, to sort of develop that a little bit more for us, for us to sort of see what he went through. And it's years later that this is his perspective, that he's recognizing that he's not in this and didn't go through that because of them, as he points fingers. But he went through this and it was all part of him, God's sovereign plan. And he sees that. He has the clarity to see that. In these situations, when we're like Joseph, maybe, maybe in the middle of that story, when we're still locked up in prison, meaning things are still going bad, we have to trust the process because the process is controlled by a sovereign and loving providential God. This has great relevance to us as a church community, especially as it relates to Pastor Casey and the sabbatical. Collective Church was planted in the fall of 2015, not that long ago. And a year and a half later, for some of the reasons I already described, years of pouring out, difficult circumstances with his extended family, in a condensed amount of time, it just left Casey running on fumes. And it became necessary for Casey, our co-lead pastor of Collective Church, to take a sabbatical. And you know as well as I do, it's been disruptive. He was preaching the vast majority of time, and then he wasn't. Of course it was. Of course it was disruptive. I've missed pastoring him, or sorry, pastoring him, pastoring with him. We've all missed seeing him around. I've even missed him on a personal level as a friend. And it's been hard to see him go through a difficult time because I love him. And that's never fun when you see someone you love go through difficult times. This is not how it was supposed to go. This is not how we planned it. But as we told you at the start of the sabbatical, and I still stand by my statements, we saw God 
providentially working in Casey's life and in Collective Church, orchestrating things surrounding what was going on with Casey and surrounding the sabbatical in ways that just caused us to praise God and thank him. It gave us a great sense that we were in good hands. Obviously, we were. The church belongs to Jesus. But it was so encouraging. But we also didn't anticipate the sabbatical would be extended for another month. That wasn't the plan either. And I just want to thank you guys because you have been amazing. I know you love Casey, and I know you miss him, but you guys have handled it so well. Your attitude has almost been like, yeah, we'll be here. We ain't going anywhere. We'll be here. We're praying for him. We love him. You guys have been amazing. And I'm so thankful that that has been your response. And I'm so proud of you as your pastor And I can't wait to tell Casey about more of that. And you've been so great just recognizing just the things that he was going through as he shared that one time. And you guys were just like, whatever you need, do whatever you got to do. We love you and we support you. And all this is so that he could go away and then come back to minister and to pastor in healthy and in uh, sustainable ways. As difficult as it's been, as disruptive as it's been, there is still the element of God's providence in all of this. There's been times, like this week was one of them, where I was just completely over it. It's been rough. But there's still, and this, and this is, this is, God is ministering to me so much about this and reminding me of this stuff that there's, God's hand is still in this. God is still working. And there's been a lot of good that has come out of this. And good is still coming out of this. Because the Lord is in control, everything is going to be all right. I really believe that. And I, for one, want to grow in my ability to see, to trust, and to rest in God's providence. I want to grow in that. And if you're with me on that, and if you feel the same, please, 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 I would just ask you, join us on Wednesday night for our prayer night. We're going to pray for Pastor Casey. We're going to pray for our church community. And we're going to pray, we're going to cray pray. (laughs) I hope we do, by the way for greater clarity and a greater sense of what God wants to do in this season. I don't mean to guilt trip you, but let me just guilt trip you. (laughs) If you love Casey and you love your church, let's do this on Wednesday night. It'll be so great. I'm so looking forward. Kyle was given the announcement earlier, and I'm like, yes, I can't wait. We do these prayer gatherings every quarter, and it's time again, and so I'm so looking forward to this. Here's the key. When we start to view our circumstances through the lens of God's providence, it changes everything. 
Once we start to be able to view those things through the lens of God's providence, the circumstances and the things that we go through, if we start to look through the lens of God's providence, it changes everything. It's being able to see God working. Earlier, when we were praying before the service, Charles, one of the band members, he was praying, and he was just pray- he said, he, he just prayed, and he said, give us eyes for Jesus. And that's the key, being able to see God in these circumstances. Because sometimes when things aren't going right or plans change or we didn't count on this or whatever, sometimes we can't see very far at all. But we need to get to that point where we're knowing and loving and trusting Jesus in such a way that we can see the big picture. And God in his grace gives us a glimpse of these things. And it's about learning how to trust in God's providence. As we learn to trust in God's providences, it frees us from the need to fix everything. Think about it. Learning to trust in God's providence frees us from the need to fix everything because from God's perspective, it might not be broken. Learning to trust in God's providence gives us a new perspective when things go wrong because we're reminded that God is still somehow working. Learning to trust in God's providence protects us from bitterness and resentment because we get bitter and we resent God when we doubt his goodness. And learning to trust in God's providence supplies us with courage to keep going because we know that if he is somehow working and if he is good, we can have that courage that we need to continue on and to keep going and to press on. There's one more thing, though, that I want to point out about what happens when we have a greater grasp on the providence of God. Check this. It helps us understand why Jesus died. How is that? In Acts chapter 2, we see Peter there preaching to the crowd on the day of Pentecost. And he describes the crucifixion of Jesus as happening, get this, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So get that, Jesus died by God's definite plan and foreknowledge. This is how, when we have a greater grasp and understanding of God's providence It helps us understand why Jesus died. And it was all for us. It was all for us because our sin separated us from God and the cross reconciled us to God. The cross was not an accident. The cross was not an afterthought in God's plan. God foreordained it from the foundation of the world. Now, those that crucified him were still guilty of the most heinous crime possible, But what happened to Jesus happened according to God's divine plan. The cross for us should remove all doubt about how good God is and how much he loves us. The cross for us should remove all doubt about how good he is and how much he loves us. And now let me just appeal to you, if you're doubting that, please just look to the cross if you're really wrestling with how much God loves you, if you're really wrestling with the goodness of God, please just look to the cross. 
The cross is a demonstration of his love and it has massive implications for our lives. Now, I understand you might be going through difficult times right now. I understand that you might feel hopeless. I understand that you might feel overwhelmed. I understand that you might feel incredibly discouraged. And I understand that your circumstances are waiting for you when you walk out the doors of this building. I get that. But my hope and my prayer is that as we do walk out of here tonight, we would walk out with a greater awareness of the providential hand of God at work in our lives. Everything is going to be all right. Not because it's going to be smooth sailing, but because God is in control. Let's pray.